The information on this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not contain or constitute and should not be interpreted as any form of medical advice or opinion. You should always seek the advice of your healthcare provider about any questions or concerns that you may have. Hello everyone, my name is Juliana Aikin. I'm the host of the Unfiltered podcast and a co-founder of Unfiltered. Today I'm interviewing Cynthia Eddings. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist specializing in narcissistic abuse recovery. She's the author of the Narcissism Recovery Journal, Prompts and Practices for Healing from Emotional Abuse and has been featured in publications including The Zoe Report and Woman's World. Today we are discussing the aftermath of narcissistic abuse, guilt, self-blame, anxiety, low self-esteem, confusion and rumination. We provide three solutions to each, empowering you to start your journey toward healing. Let's get started. Hi, Cynthia Eddings. Thank you so much for joining me again. It's nice to see you again. It's so nice to be here. Thank you. Great. And I'm really, really looking forward to our talk today because we're going to focus a lot on healing and internal work and what we can do within ourselves. So, and we have quite many questions. So I want to get started with our first one, which is what are three things that someone can do to overcome the guilt that narcissistic abuse creates? Right. Good question. It's certainly something that I see a lot in my work with narcissistic abuse victims and um, in my own self. And we, you know, let's look at guilt, what it is. It's a natural and inherit feeling that we get as humans. Most of us do. I don't think everybody feels guilt. It's interesting now that I'm talking about it um, is that narcissists often don't feel guilt themselves. Um, which is interesting. And that brings up this whole idea of projection. So first of all, let's talk about guilt. Guilt is a feeling that tells us we've done something wrong. That's maybe been hurtful to another person or another living being. And it te- it can be our teacher. It teaches us that we can repair. We can go back, make amends, apologize, make up for it and learn from it so that we don't continue that behavior. Um, So guilt, if you think about what we learned about projection or what we've talked about projection in a narcissist is they, they put onto you what it is that they don't feel themselves that's going on within you. And so if you understand that dynamic, if you have the feeling of guilt, it's like, did I, have I really done something wrong or am I picking up the feelings of another person and I'm carrying that negative feeling that they can't tolerate? Have I taken that on? Often with a narcissist, it's like a light bulb moment. It's like, Hey, wait a minute. This isn't about me. You know, they're the one that should feel guilty. They're the one that has been behaving wrong and badly. They're the one that's not apologized for me for their abandonment or their ghosting or their manipulation. So once you understand that, it's so much easier to go, wait a minute, I don't have to hold on to this. Um, 
but it's not so easy to let go of, right? It's like we get it in our heads. So we have the understanding, which brings me to the second point of to get help with like, how do you deal with this feeling that may be stuck on you? Is that often, you know, seeking professional help with that can help start untangle that the way that you are now holding on to it and understanding it. And it's a way to a, a place that you can take it so you don't have to carry it yourself. And then another way to deal with the feelings of guilt that you may be, feel stuck with after you understand what it's about is just surrounding yourself with supportive people friends that you trust, that understand you, um, that may be also struggling with guilt themselves. It's, you know, creating a community around yourself so that you're not so alone with it. Mm, yeah. So especially when you said your second point <clears throat> that, you know, seeking professional help so you, you can really process it. So it's really about kind of finding a supportive space where you can kind of feel the feeling with someone else who validates it and helps you understand it. But it's about finding this space where you can actually come with this feeling. And over time, when you process it with someone who is able to validate you and help you understand it, it kind of melts away. Is that like, yeah, very yeah. good way of putting that. It can also be, you know, a, a good support system, a good, I mean, a, a, a group, like a support group that you're in, where you hear other people that are also sharing what they're feeling. It helps you feel not so like this is something I'm supposed to be feeling. And it helps, like you say, dissolve it and diminish it and, and, um, the other the other point is that it it opens up the window for self-compassion that this isn't this is something that's happened to you that you know it's kind of been dumped onto you and to be gentle with yourself around it if it's if it's not so easy to let go of is to treat it with some tender kind compassion Mm -hmm. Does in practice, would that look like, I don't know, writing self-compassionate letters to yourself or just engaging in every time if you notice yourself having these uh, thoughts that relate to the guilt or you're feeling uneasy and you know it's about the guilt, is it that then you just do ha have to take a moment and try to talk to yourself in a self-compassionate way or do you have any practical tips what people could do? That's a good way to do it on the fly. If you do have the space and the time where you can sit quietly, you can actually start saying what I call good parenting messages to yourself. It's the things that a good, nurturing, compassionate parent would say to their child if their child was really upset. Like, I, I hear you. I understand that you're feeling this way. Tell me more. Um, I love you just the way you are. Um, I'm here for you. I see you. I'll never leave you alone. I'll always be here for you. And it's even that gentle touch in the heart space of, you know, of feeling the warmth of your hand as you say those things to yourself, as if you had a, 
compassionate, wise um, being with you that was providing you comfort and compassion. Mm. What are the most common like uh, things that when you are helping people and survivors of narcissistic abuse that their that their guilt kind of uh, relates to? Like, what can you can are you do you what do oh. you think? What are the kind of the yeah. specific? What do they feel guilty about? Like most common things. Yeah. Well, the first one is like this is about me. This is my fault. There's something wrong with me. I'm too sensitive. I am not responding in the right way. I'm the one that's causing him to rage. They, they, you know, take on the blame. It's their fault. They need to change in order to, to not make their partner angry or upset, or there's something about them that's wrong. Mm, yeah definitely i have heard that too and then another one um oh well before i jump into that can you maybe talk specifically about guilt that you might feel about okay it's me it's my problem i need like i'm i'm i can't handle my emotions and i'm i'm the one causing the problems here can you uh, give some specific advice or just uh, i don't know validating a mindset that people can hold on to if they can recognize okay my guilt is specifically about that what we just talked about mm -hmm. so that the guilt is specifically about you know relates to the feeling that oh it's all my fault and the problem is me yeah so i'm thinking about how you could imagine, you know, if you had a really good friend that was having this internal dialogue that it's my fault, I did something wrong, I'm bad, I'm overreacting, I'm too pushy, I have too many needs, is that if you have a really good friend that knew you and your relationship and they were saying these things to themselves, what would you say to them? And most likely that the the response is, I would say that it, you know, that this person has been really cruel to you, has been really mean to you. Um, it's like your thinking has gotten warped. You're not thinking straight. Um, it's not true. So it becomes like a cognitive exercise, a thought exercise of being aware of your thoughts that you're having these thoughts. Just like if you were listening to a friend saying it and then challenging them of like, wait, is this really true? Yeah, it makes sense. So it sounds like you that what would be helpful thing to do is to look at your situation and observe your thoughts from a third person perspective, kind of. So it's step out and then you also challenge, challenge them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, then then other other things and what I have heard that people's guilt relate to is, for example, after the relationship has ended and let's say they have left, so they feel guilty about leaving. They feel guilty about that because sometimes I know that some narcissistic people, they might have a really big breakdown. Like, oh, I'm just now in therapy and you are now leaving me, like I'm changing for you or whatever, but like they can eat they can actually guilt trip you into feeling guilty for leaving the relationship because you just 
are choosing kind of your your mental and all overall well-being and other one no and i just want to say this so it's not that we are only focusing on romantic relationships other one would be uh, feeling guilty of leaving or going no contact with your parents or just reducing the contact mini to the minimum and then your parents being like like why why do you hate us why do you hate our family why do you go away and that can cause also guilt so um yeah do you have some some specific advice when people feel guilty that they are finally kind of choosing their overall well-being over the toxic person yeah good yeah good point and i've heard this too of people that are have an employer or a work situation that is very toxic and they're trying to get out of but yet they i can't leave now who's gonna nobody else can do what i do and i'm just gonna leave everybody in a mess and there are people there that i really care about and i know that it's going to impact them and it's going to make more work for them so yes it can apply to a lot of different situations and so this is where the word codependency comes to mind and um the thing that that I say that really makes a big impact than when I first heard it is like, um, are you setting yourself on fire to keep somebody else warm? So this becomes like, who's, you know, that, that you're putting other people's other, other, you're letting, allowing yourself to be impacted by other people's troubles um meanwhile you're dying so the best thing to help everybody is this is the analogy too of putting your seatbelt on first before you put the seatbelt on of others and that if you're in a, an abusive relationship and you have come to the place where you're able to find a way out and that guilt is like causing you pause or maybe you are out and then you're struggling with, oh my God, now they're angry at me. Now they're upset. Now they're, they're threatening to kill themselves. Um, and it's going to be my responsibility. You know, that thing of like, we can't be responsible for other people's feelings. It's their feelings and we can't actually rescue them and save them. And so the guilt that you're feeling most likely is residue from unmet childhood needs that went wrong that, or that, you know, you didn't, that didn't get met and somehow you became the caretaker for other people's feelings. So we're all responsible for our own feelings. And yes, I hear that often, you know, I can't leave because I couldn't sit with the feeling of knowing of how upsetting it would be to my parents or to my coworkers or to my, my potential ex um, is that that's why it's important to work with a professional and build the resiliency to be able to sit with the uncomfortable feelings and to work with them so that, that you're not making decision based on on that, on your feelings, mm. on your emotions. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Like, oft yeah, often I also hear that, you know, as 
like uh for example well it could be also a romantic relationship but like in family relationships when your narcissistic parents are getting old and let's say you are the only one around and then if you are trying to kind of uh limit the contact or go no contact and so you know hard. <laughs> yeah but then There's they still that it's yeah. so hard this is a really complicated hard thing mm -hmm. to do mm. and then but and then at the same time sometimes their abuse might even increase because it's almost like they're you know when they come closer to death like it almost looks like their whole i don't know sense of self is even more like i don't know how to how to dis describe it but like it, it's just it falls apart because it never was even a strong a strong one i'm talking about the narcissistic person's sense of self so now all of the things that they may have used to build that up like material things beauty or being like um yeah like looks and all those they of course with age they they kind of go away or they don't remain the same yeah so even their abuse might increase and then it and then of course you are going to be the one who is taking it and then if you want to leave so they might be even more harsh towards you and then your guilt is even more profound you know so it's it's a very tough situation for sure it is for sure yeah it's the the dying process the end of life you're losing control you can't control your beauty you can't control your movements your body starts declining your mind gets strange you've lost control of your finances your ability to make money and so you get more controlling and so the abuse can get to get more and yeah um it's, it can be very challenging if if there aren't the fight if if your parents haven't set themselves up financially to be taken care of at the end and it's up to you to take care of them and you're taking that on that's something to be aware of too you know that if you're the if you're the one they depend on to take care of them um they set it up that way and it's really hard to walk away from that when you see if you leave then who's going to be there for them but if they've set up you know long-term care insurance a way for them to live at, through the end of their lives so that you could be a, a distant support system for them rather than the the sole person managing all their affairs they've put you in that position and and that's a real tough one mm, yeah but yeah that that's a good point yeah then what do you think uh, what are three things that someone can do to overcome the self-blame that narcissistic abuse creates? Right. This is, we've kind of touched on this in talking about the guilt uh, is like the internalized, it's my fault. That's what the narcissist is doing to you is like, all this is your fault. They're really good at that, of making us believe that all the problems in the relationship are our fault. The fact that they're having an affair is our fault. It's like, and then that gets projected into us. Maybe it is my fault. Maybe the 10 pounds I gained when I had my first child um, and now my husband 
doesn't want to be intimate with me because I weigh more, you know, maybe that is my fault. Maybe, you know, so um, what, how do we manage this is similar to the, the guilt is that practice self-compassion um, is a really important one. And I want to bring up something that helped me and that I often turn my clients to is a program that deals with self-compassion and teaches you how to be self-compassion. It's called, called mindfulness-based self-compassion. And it's a program. It's I think it's six or it's eight weeks where you meet with a group. They have them online now. They're all over the world. So you have access to them. But um, this can really help that internalized blame that starts to happen. I also like to, when I'm working with clients around this is to, um, you know, listen to the the talk that they're, that they're saying and how they're feeling about themselves. Like I'm bad. I'm not adequate. Um, I don't have what it takes. I'm flawed. It's all my fault is to like, look at this voice inside of themselves as an aspect of themselves, that it's not everything who they are, that it's, it's actually like a, a little gremlin or a, a little inner critic that is just like talking in their ear and, and saying these bad things about them. And so that's one way to work with it is to, to like get to know this part of yourself as an aspect. This is not all, that you are, that there are other parts of you that want to survive, that want to live, that want to feel joy, that want to be connected to others in a secure, safe way. Um, so, you know, it's first of all, recognizing that that's happening. So that's the very first step is, oh, I am taking responsibility for my marriage failing or for my job not working out or for my parents suffering um, is to recognize that and then to challenge, just like we said before, is to challenge those, those thoughts and then to have compassion for yourself. Mm, yeah, makes sense. And I, I want to ask about the, um, when you talked about the parts thing, that like at least one thing that I have heard that might be helpful is that you actually like are mindful the way you speak to yourself. Do you say like, it's, it's all my fault? Or do you say, for example, part of me feels that it might be all my fault? So it, by just changing the language a little bit, you are already kind of looking, okay, it's a part of me and it feels like that or it thinks like that. So you are immediately kind of looking at, okay, I'm looking a part of me and it's not everywhere and it just feels like that. So just kind of a little bit tweaking the language can actually help that. Because of course, if you say to yourself like, everything is all my fault every time or like always compared to part of me feels that something that I I'm that this is my like fault so it, I feel like with language and how how we t talk to ourselves we can escalate the situation inside our head or try to de-escalate so kind of using de-escalating 
language as well? Or what are your thoughts? Yeah, good point. Absolutely. Okay. So to su summarize kind of this self-blame part, that first, I feel like this first might be in everywhere, but like kind of recognize and identify like, okay, like I'm having self-blame about these and these thoughts. And like in the, these situations, they get triggered or, you know, kind of be, becoming aware where does the self-blame, uh, where where is the self-blame and to what aspects and things does it relate to? Then again, you mentioned the self-compassion. So really being self-compassionate with yourself and kind of third thing, or I don't know, does the order matter, but except that the first that you need to recognize, but then also the parts that you can, you know, look at your, look at it as, okay, it's not a whole, you are, the feeling doesn't I kind of define you. It's just a part. And then it's maybe easier to observe when you don't get caught up to that emotion that much and you are, you know, better. Kind of, because of course, when we are way in a heightened emotional state is, <laughs> it's our thinking becomes very, um, yeah, it, it affects that. Yeah, this is what's helpful about the self-compassion because the self-compassion can bring you back into a more regulated place that, you know, if you are being bombarded by your, this part of you that is telling you that it's, you're bad and it's all your fault is to recognize that and then, you know, take some breaths and take a pause so that you can come to a place where that you can acknowledge that's not all of you, that there are other parts of you that can be gentle and compassionate and can help you untangle and separate yourself from the negative self-talk. Mm, yeah. Thank you. Then what do you think about what are three things that someone can do to overcome the anxiety that narcissistic abuse creates? Yeah, this is a big one. Um, you know, there's a lot of painful emotions that come from being in a toxic, abusive relationship. And anxiety is one of them. Um, so, you know, I work with really connecting into the body a lot of the stuff that we've already talked about is like what's going on in our head you know it's those those thoughts it's the inner critic speaking the voices that we're hearing and anxiety is a feeling and in order to understand it we all feel anxiety at some point is to get out of the head and into the body so that's hard to do when you're really under a lot of stress. So I think one of the first things when you're starting to heal from, or if you are in an, in still in a relationship that's toxic is to get into a practice of relaxation techniques. This can either be breathing exercises, a meditation practice, uh, yoga, which is movement, which is great for anxiety. Sometimes it's really hard to sit still when you have a lot of anxiety going on. So getting involved in a movement practice, yoga, Pilates, gyrotonics. Um, there are some, there's a yoga now for trauma, for healing trauma. So um, 
And then there's another program I talked about mindfulness-based self-compassion. There's also another program called mindfulness-based stress reduction. It's M-B-S-R. And this is a, done a, have had done a lot of research on this and it's great for anxiety. So it gets you out of your head and into your body. So you really focus on just different body parts. Um, so with breath, with, with attuning your breath and your focus to, it might just be your big toe of just staying with that. Um, and sometimes the practices are like 45 minutes. So this creates just like going to the gym where you're, where you're strengthening your muscles, this creates your ability to focus on the sensation or the area of your body. And it gets you out of your head and it's very calming. So I like to, to use the term change your state. So if you're in a heightened state of anxiety and you need to do something different, I mean, and you wanna feel different, is to change your state. So what are the things that you can do? You can do yoga. Um, you can take a cold shower. You can take your shoes off and walk barefoot in the grass. You can lay in the sun for 10 minutes and just focus on the sensation of the sun on your body. You can do yoga. You can change what's going on for you. And so I, I've mentioned a few of these programs that you can do. They're, they're great because they set you up to be able to shift into another thing. Change your state. If your state is heightened anxiety, that's something that you have control of. Anxiety is fear. So our nervous system is afraid and we get all these sensations in the body like I can't breathe, your chest is constricted, you feel tightness in your body, um, and there might be thickness and tightness in your head or your gut, you get an upset stomach because everything is constricted. So when you become aware of what's happening in your body and you've got some of these practices in place, you can use them. It's an easier go-to. It's it, You feel more capable of getting out of the state of heightened anxiety and, sh and shifting it by doing something that works for you. We're all different. We all can't just sit still and close our eyes and focus on our breath because there's just too much going on inside. So what would work for what, you know, you got to figure out what works for you. So those are some of my ideas. And then I have another one, um, which is to set boundaries. So back to anxiety, anxiety is really, a there's a perception of fear that's going on. And if you're in a relationship with a narcissist, it's a real thing. So you are focused on, am I safe? Have, have they shifted into a rage mode? Are they gonna walk in the door and start telling me everything that is bad about um, how the house is or um, how I look or, you know, we're just always anticipating how are we gonna protect ourselves from the manipulation and the, the abuse. And so here we go with boundaries, right? It's really important to talk about boundaries with anxiety. So we're talking about fear and with anxiety. So um, setting boundaries can give you a sense of 
mm, like strength, like you can do something about this. Um, it's an internal thing. Well, it can be external too. Like just saying no is setting a boundary. Like, no, I'm not going to sit here and let you rage at me and getting up and, and going somewhere else. Um, it, it can be, you know, having a safe, a boundary can be like, I'm in the room with the door closed. I need to be by myself right now. So that can be an external boundary. An internal boundary is sometimes, you know, you, you're not able to set the external boundary or it's not safe to say no because you know no might put fuel on the fire of what's going on. Sometimes no works really well with a narcissist, by the way. It's just like they need somebody to tell them no. You know, like, like a child, like a two-year-old needs the boundary of no, you can't do that. So it's like stopping them. Okay, so the internal boundary is um, maybe you're in a work situation and you're in a meeting and things are getting really toxic and out of control and it's your job to stay in the room. It's a meeting. You feel like you can't get up and leave. First of all, I would say you, you could always get up and protect yourself. But if you find yourself in a situation where you feel trapped and there's an internal boundary, um, this can give, because can lower the anxiety by giving you a sense of, um, I'm not going to take in the toxicity or the abuse that's happening around me. So how do you do this? Uh, I work with clients in two ways with this. One is to put yourself in a bubble. So you use your imagination and you create a big bubble around yourself. And it's a kind of bubble that you can see out of and that people can see into, but that what's coming at you can't penetrate. So it's some sort of transparent or you can make it translucent to give you even more of a sense of like you're contained in this bubble. And in your imagine, you let whatever's coming at you, it just bounces off, it can't get in. So that you can sit there and breathe. It creates a space, like a protective, it gives you more room so that you can breathe, which is a great way to lower anxiety, is just to take some deep breaths. So it's allowing you space by creating this bubble. Some of my clients like to use the puffer fish. So it's like you feel the anxiety, things are coming at you, you don't have a sense of control, Is but what you can do internally is imagine yourself a beautiful tropical puffer fish that just like blows up. We've all seen these on the natural TV shows. And these fish go from like basic little fish all of a sudden like, ooh, like they have spines and things that poke out of them. And they, they fill themselves up and they become very buoyant. So they're like a balloon. So if something pokes them or hits them, they just they just move. And nothing can get into them. And you can imagine that, you know, if you have spikes coming out, that they're poison. So that the that you give yourself a way of not having to absorb and take in what's coming out from you. So this can really help with anxiety. Anxiety is a huge thing. We could talk about it for a long, long time because there's all different kinds of anxiety and people feel it in different ways. Um, and it's certainly something that comes along with being in a relationship with a narcissist. 
Um, okay, so I want to add something else as I'm thinking about this. And this is medication. So um, I know there's controversy around using medication as a way to manage or shift what we're feeling. Um, but if your anxiety is so big that you are unable to, to slow down enough or create enough space around you where you can breathe and it's been going on for a while, anxiety and the stress can actually hurt your brain and cause your brain to stop, stop functioning in a, in a healthy way. So I want to say that there is a place for chemical intervention here to help calm things down so that you can start to think clear and that you can find ways to breathe, to do some of the things I've talked about to help regulate and bring your emotions down to a space where you can think clearly and you can function better mm. and you get yourself safe. Mm. So are you talking about painkillers? Oh, good question. Um, well, you know, I'm not a medical doctor, so, um, but no, there are specific medications to help uh, with anxiety. A lot of them actually. And medications, you know, sometimes it's a, sometimes they nail it in the first one, but sometimes you have to try a couple ways to, you know, help. Um, you know, anxiety, and there's some medications that work both with anxiety and depression together. Depression's another one of these things that can happen. It's a mental health issue with being in a long-term relationship with somebody who's abusive. So that's what I'm talking about. It's like uh, not a pain pill. However, there's been research recently. <laughs> yeah. So interesting, right. That, you know, we think of taking a pain pill because we have, you know, you hurt, you smashed your finger and it's throbbing. It's like, okay, so you take an aspirin. But they they know now that the pain in our emotions comes from the same part of our brain that a physical pain comes from. And that taking a pain medication can actually help you feel, diminish the emotional pain. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, it is. That's why, like, that's why I first thought, are you talking about painkillers? Because yeah. I have heard a similar kind of thing that, yeah, it kind of a little bit, you know, make even a pain, just a painkiller can a little bit, you know, help in a, in a tough situation if you are really anxious. So yeah, thank you. And that's over the counter. So it's not as complex as mm -hmm. getting a doctor to prescribe um, something. But yeah, mm -hmm. you have to follow the recommended dosage. <laughs> and, um, yeah. not overdo it but yes it can help yeah and as you were speaking about the kind of you know that we should uh, that one helpful thing is to create this kind of use your imagination to create this safe space for you so uh in order to manage your anxiety i'm thinking is it is that is that kind of the quote-unquote science behind that that if uh, anxiety is rooted on fear and insecurity and kind of insecurity of what is going to happen or what is going to happen in the future. And so, or, you know, kind of, you might feel more anxious if you feel like you don't have control over yourself at all and your physical safety and whatever emotional safety and everything. So this bubble creates this 
sense of safety and also then you mentioned boundaries boundaries i feel like that creates a sense of agency and sense of like i am in control of uh, of myself i am here kind of advocating for myself what do i tolerate and what i don't tolerate so is is because that that those two things came to my mind as you were giving those examples okay set boundaries and create this safe bubble that the kind of the reason like why you gave those two reasons is because it creates you know sense of safety and sense of uh, you know kind of control over your own well-being and situation and how you are in the situation or or am I lost here <laughs> oh no I think you're right yeah um so when you're in a relationship with a narcissist, they eventually take control of everything. And that feels so scary that you don't, you know, you don't have a sense. I'm thinking now of like, imagine uh, these people that have been um, held hostage or they've been, you know, captured and they're, 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 their capturers are have complete control over everything. And there's just that I, I can't, you know, it's a similar kind of feeling that happens. You lose your sense of agency and control. And so this is the one thing that we have control over is our internal world and how we're thinking and how we're responding to situations. And so I think this is actually the most important point that I'm trying to make is that, that this takes practice. If you've been living a life where the environment and who you're with and your family or your spouse has been basically captivating you or controlling you. Um, and I'm thinking of people that have been in captivity. So it's like the one thing they have control over, I'm thinking of Viktor Frankl, who wrote the word, the book Man's Search for Meaning. He was a um, Auschwitz survivor. And the, he talks about in his book, how he survived that was what he did on the inside, that he had control over his thoughts and his responses to what was going on around him and so this is the internal boundary that I was talking about that that he was able to actually relax into his experience as horrific as it was and as dangerous as it was by being really present and how he was responding to what was going on around him Mm, okay so again kind of this mindfulness piece probably comes here really being present and kind of letting go of the thoughts that, okay what's going to happen what's going to happen next but just focusing like okay uh okay right now it's like it's safe right now i can focus on what's going right now i'm doing all right in this moment i will do all right in in 10 seconds or in 10 minutes or next day as well yeah yeah. And it's a practice learning how to do this was like I said, going to the gym. It's like something that we 
can do. And um, one way to do this, if you can carve out just the first few minutes of the day when you're first waking up, it may be you're still in bed or it may be you get your cup of coffee and you sit quietly, is to just have a practice where you're focused on what am I feeling right now? Or what's the quality of my breath? Or I'm going to take 10 slow, deep breaths, and I'm just going to focus on that. That is like going to the gym and doing your bicep curls. After a while, that muscle gets much stronger, and you're able to call on it when you need it. So that if you're in a really stressful situation, and your nervous system is overwhelmed, that you can call on the resiliency that you've built over just the simple practice that you've done every single day to actually give you the space and get out of the worry of the future and to be present with what's going on right now so that you can create safety for yourself. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really important because uh, I don't want anyone to kind of listen to this and be like, well, there was this one day I was very anxious. I tried those deep breaths and really kind of, you know, call myself down, but I, I, I wasn't able to, it just could be because you tried maybe for the first time and with like, it's, it's almost like trying to, you know, you get, you go into a competition and you have to create this masterpiece, like paint a masterpiece. And you, you just have to do it in, in on the spot. And next to you is someone who has practiced every day for that same competition. So of course, they are going to be able to pull up, uh, pull up a way better painting compared to you. So it's kind of the same that, okay, if you are immediately in a very uh, uh, tough situation and then you are trying to learn something new, like uh, talking self-compassionate way or identifying your feelings or trying to challenge them, it might just be too much. So I think that's why I like that, that, you know, that kind of that we engage in these practices when we are not that stressed. We are, we might be quite okay. We are calm. We are, everything is fine, but that's, that's a good point that you said that that's actually building the resilience, building up the skills then for those really tough moments that might, might come. And it's giving you something to do that um, gives you a sense of control. Like you have control over this. This is something that you can do. That nobody can take this away from you. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Then um, next we have, what are three things that someone can do to overcome the low self-esteem that narcissistic abuse creates? Oh, this is sad when I think about it. Um, this is what a narcissist does to get you to be dependent on them, is that they break down your sense of self. And it happens slowly over time. It's so hard to know and feel it because then usually in the beginning of the relationship it's really great and that can go on for a while six months two years three years even until this you know the slow breaking down of your self-esteem and um yeah it's it's so what what do we do with that when we we start feeling I hear this when I get calls from prospective clients or looking for help with this is like this feeling of I've completely lost myself. 
and they're crying and they can't really put their finger on why they're crying, but they can't stop crying. And it's just, there's so much pain about being so disconnected from who they used to be. They're just not the same person anymore. Um, and, and their insecurity about their capability in life is just diminished. They've not been able to work or they've stopped working because the narcissist has convinced them that they don't need to, which leaves them feeling more dependent on this person. Um, and they've been separated from their, their work and what they were interested in doing for so long, they don't feel like they can get back to it. So this is a common thing that happens. And so what you can do about it, if you're in that place of feeling like, like unworthy and you've lost your self-esteem is really practicing self-care is starting to take care of yourself like you would take care of somebody who's been injured or wounded that you really care about that you would be gentle with them you would make sure they got fed right you would tend to their wounds you would be gentle you would you would do things that would be delightful with them um whatever it was that that delighted them you would participate in with them so you start doing this for yourself starting to connect back to what used to bring you joy um, this is part of the self-care and it might be movement you might have been uh, an ice skater and you stop doing that and maybe it's just going down to the rink and and watching for a bit and getting that feeling and to see if that 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 feeling starts happening inside of you. Of course, it could be anything, whatever it was that that used to bring you joy that you've been disconnected with. Um, and you do this with a lot of kindness and compassion. It, you know, just like I said, if you had a child that was hurt and was recovering from an illness and they used to love to go to the park and play you might go to the park with them and just sit if they're incapable of actually playing on the the swings or the the slides and things is like you might just let them go walk around it and touch it and maybe watch the other children and giggle a little bit and you know maybe eventually they'll they'll start feeling strong enough to engage in those things so what is it that brings you joy what is it that you've lost what maybe there's something new that you can do that to take up a new hobby um start to take vigorous walks uh, and just see if you can get stronger if you used to be a runner is to maybe start climbing some hills or hiking the steps at the stadium just to build up your strength again and feel what it's like to to start breathing hard again and getting stronger so but doing it with gentleness and compassion um, and then we're back to, you know, low self-esteem causes negative self-talk. Like I'm not strong enough. Um, I'm not good enough. And the self-blame comes back in. So again, it's like, you know, befriending this inner critic. It's like, oh, this is a part of myself. This isn't all of me. Um, that, you know, you do have a memory of when you were playful and had some joy and so it's like why is this part showing up like you know asking it questions like why what are you trying to protect me from by telling me that I'm not strong enough 
you know, and there's might be a fear there of you're going to fail and it'll be a self-fulfilling prophecy. And you might need to tell that part of yourself to put a muzzle on it, you know, like, like say, okay, I see you. I know you've got something to say, but there's another part of me that really needs to go out and, and express myself and paint or run or go skiing or whatever those things were that, that brings you joy. Um, and is to say, I see you, I know you're there, but I'm just going to sit you down and I want you to watch right now. And I'm going to put a muzzle on you because it's not helping me that you're, you're saying these things to me right now. I'll tell you, this is the third thing is that sometimes these things are really hard to do on your own. So, um, one of the best things to do is to seek out support. So find a support network like this network um, where you're not alone with it, that you are getting support from other people. Um, it may be, you know, you have a few friends that you check in with regularly so that you can share what you're feeling and what the negative self-talk is and support each other through that and maybe engage in some of these things. I, I recently, I have a friend who's um, having a hard time. Her, her body is breaking down and she's not able to do the things she used to do. And I'm in Southern California and um, it's springtime here and the wildflowers are just amazing. We had a super bloom because we had a lot of rain this year. And, um, but she can't get out in it. And I knew that's something that she would love to do. So I just picked a huge basket full of wildflowers and brought it to her. And we just enjoyed them together. Um, and it, it was, I felt like I was five years old again, looking at a buttercup for the first time and, you know, pulling it apart and looking at all the different intricate parts in them. And it just was such a moment of, of um, connecting with myself and with another person and sharing like, oh, look at this one. And oh, can you believe what's this one called and looking up the names of them together. So it really, doing something like that can really um, help you not feel so alone and so we're talking about self-esteem of that you you are somebody that is connected to good people that you that that are around you that you can be part of a support network that you start to hear that you're worthy from other people how much they appreciate your presence just like how much i appreciated my friend's presence and her delighting in this little gift that i brought her um, was like, it helped me feel good about myself. And I know it helped her feel less immersed in the pain and the suffering that she's experiencing now. And so not being alone with it, reaching out, seeking support can be really helpful to start bringing your esteem back up. Yeah, thank you. That was really, really helpful. And, um, yeah, it almost sounds like that it even doesn't matter that much what you should do, but just to try and do something 
and it could be some old thing that you were previously passionate about or then just exploring new things if you want to but just kind of uh putting yourself out there and even you don't even have to try to do it with a you know all smiley face and everything just like you kind of explained the kid that you know going to the park and just being there seeing that being in the environment maybe then like well i came here so i i could i could you know try to <laughs> try to do something because i already i'm already here and so i often find that like if we we feel if we feel very unmotivated to do anything like like yeah i read all the time but i should you know you know find my some hobbies or some passions or something what i what brings me joy but i just don't feel like motivated at all that usually we wait for the motivation it might not come ever so it's almost like you can maybe maybe go to the walk or park or wherever with a you know, you don't have to have a smile on your face, but you just go because you're like, I know this is good for me. So I'm just going no matter what, what's my mood. Maybe, maybe then there, you know, you meet someone there or something funny happens or you see something that's really beautiful and then it immediately lights up your mood or other, other thing. If you are like, well, maybe I would want to paint, but then you don't feel like it. But sometimes the feeling of, like oh this was a creative experience comes after finishing the painting or after painting for one hour you're like hmm okay well this was actually quite nice but it's like it comes later it comes like maybe a few first minutes you're like uh, uh but then when you get into flow state if you get there but then then it actually might might feel quite good so and and one one other tip like even if it doesn't feel like like that you don't have uh, you shouldn't have any expectations that oh it's going to feel amazing and just you know change everything but it's like even if you try something and you're like well i don't feel like a ama- like i don't feel that much better just notice if you feel a little bit better like at least a little bit or maybe at least you don't feel worse but like kind of trying it over and over again because usually we get into stuff when we get for example a little bit better at them we get motivated then when we see the progress like of you know kind of being in this mindset and um and one other thing that i want to say is that uh once um like it's really hard when you are feeling down and low to be self-compassionate in a way that you try to change the situation and do something that you know will make you feel better but it's the it's the you need to find the force and force yourself to take this first step. For example, I always know that exercising will make me feel better, but if I'm feeling very low, I might be, I don't want to do anything. But if I do get myself out there, that's the hardest part. And there was a time that I always did kind of the kid in the park thing. So I went to the gym but I didn't exercise because I was like, um, you know, I, I, I didn't feel like I was feeling so low. I was like, what, what's the point? Because I, I can't do anything. So, but I, and then one day I came home and my husband asked me, how was the training? And then I said, well, I've been going there a few times now, but I never trained because I'm so weak. And then he looked at me and I was like, the way you think is making you weak. It's your, the way you think about the situation. So I think that a lot, like 
because it's true. It's not that I am inherently weak. It's the way, you know, I think about the situation. So then a few weeks after that, I still went there, but I didn't do anything. But I, I switched my talk and I said, well, I got up and now I'm walking outside. I walked to the gym and back, but I didn't yet go to the gym. But then now over time, it's like, now I can, now I'm going to the gym, but it started very small. So it's, it's just really important to, and to realize that it's okay to start small and everything changed with the internal talk as well. When it came to my, my situation, everyone is different, but yeah. Yeah. And what I noticed in what you just said is that it was really helpful to have somebody else give you a different perspective. Yeah. But really. it's, not, it's not that you're weak. It's that you're thinking that you're weak. That really helped you shift that. So, you know, narcissistic abuse can make us feel so isolated and alone. And it's, it's, we forget that there are people out there that can help us just a little shift in the perspective of that made a big difference. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Then what do you think? What are three things that someone can do to overcome the confusion that narcissistic abuse creates? Wow, brain fog, right? We all hear this, God, I just can't think straight. Um and I don't know what's what. Is it him or is it me? Or is, you know, am I sick? Uh, is there something wrong? Do I need to go to the doctor? I just I'm like I can't function. I can't see. I can't feel. And um, I actually, this book is really great. And I have it ready here. Um, it's called Out of the Fog. And, you know, it's, she's talking about the, the brain fog. Her name is Dana Morningstar. And um, fog meeting fear, obligation, and guilt. So we've talked about those things. And those are the things that cause the, con the, the confusion. So it fits right in here with what we're talking about today. So how do you get yourself thinking more clearly? I guess that's the opposite of the, the confusion is like, what's right? What's, what's real here? Um, so, you know, educating yourself about the dynamic of narcissism and the impact that it can have on victims is one of the best things that you can do. It's like when you start understanding, oh, this is what they do. They project the things that they're unable to feel about themselves onto me. That's why I'm feeling so heavy. And that's why I'm feeling guilty. And that's why um, I'm feeling bad about myself. It's like they've somehow like magically like inserted these things into me. So yeah, so okay. It's it's a it's more that their deficit. They're so compromised in their ability to connect with themselves and to feel that now I'm carrying this around. That's kind of education and knowledge can be so helpful. And of course, there's all these other components to narcissism that once you understand them it it takes some of the burden off of you and it's like oh, okay that makes sense all right that's why when i say i need to sit down 
and talk to you about how I'm feeling when about what just happened in this argument. Can you sit down with me so we can have a discussion? And that sends them into a rage just because you have a need to talk about something. And then you understand that when you have a need, you ask a narcissist for something that you need, it lands on them as a criticism. And they can't tolerate being judged or criticized. Meaning that I need to talk to you immediately. What they hear is there's something wrong. Like you're going to blame them for something. That's what happens. And if you understand that, that your needs are met with, you're actually hurting them by having a need. Then it helps you understand that, oh, I, I can't expect for this person to meet my needs, my emotional needs, because when I express them, it makes them so angry that it makes everything worse. Then I just get this big over lash now. I get lashed out at for having a need. So your needs are valid and you're, you're worthy of having needs. You're you are worthy of sitting down with with your partner and saying, I want to talk about something that I'm feeling that's going on between us. That's what builds intimacy and safety in a relationship of being able to sit down and talk about these things. If your need for that is getting shot down as if like your needs are are wrong to have any needs at all, of course you're going to start having brain fog. Like, fog like it's like what's wrong here I don't understand it's a basic human need to, to have needs so um learning about this and understanding that that's what's going on will give you clarity and it helps you feel like less in the fog and it helps you understand oh it's like I've been banging my head against the wall trying to get him to listen and hear me when he doesn't have the capability of that, he's just not, he's not wired that way. It, it brings clarity. It's like, okay, now it's sad. It's like, oh, the person that I expect that is supposed to be compassionate and loving and hear me and want to help and be involved in this marriage isn't. Is like, you know, that takes you to another level of feelings of like oh this is this is my reality this is sad what am i gonna what's gonna happen here how do i manage this so to help with the um confusion and uncertainty i think one of the most important things is to really learn about the dynamics and there's lots of resources online for this and this podcast too you know there's lots of of people that specialize in in educating about this that can help you. So, and there's lots of books written on it now. So the one that I just showed out of the fog is really a good one. Um, and again, just seeking professional help for, from somebody who understands this dynamic that can help support you as you bring up the things that are going on with you, the way you're feeling, the, the behaviors that are happening in your relationship can really help and also give you tools and skills to help manage them, which is 
back in line with education, there's another book I highly recommend, which is um, written by Wendy Bahare. It's called Disarming the Narcissist. This is full of ways, if you are unable to get out of a relationship with a narcissist, and there's lots of reasons why um, people can't do that. <clears throat> if you are having to, to navigate the relationship, that's a really good resource. It's actually the thing that helped me. It's a thing that like started me on my journey and my path out of my <clears throat> marriage with a narcissist was this book. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a real thing. Your fog, your mental fog is a real thing when you're in a relationship with a narcissist. Yeah. Thank you. That's, and I totally agree. That's, that's a, such a great point. And what do you, what are your thoughts about, or did you do this uh, yourself while you were in it? All kinds of kind of writing things down, tracking, for example, cycles of rage or, you know, incidents, writing them down, because I feel I'm a huge fan of kind of right keeping some kind of log or something because otherwise we might you know go with our lives you know we have work and taking sometimes taking care of kids or you know other responsibilities it might be like i at least i like sometimes months go by and i'm like almost unaware of it because i'm so like you know everything is going so but then as soon as i for example track things i can you know see patterns and that kind of can also bring clarity if you're like oh we have a huge argument or he or she blows up every every uh you know once a week or every two weeks or once a month or and then you know or yeah but what do you think all you know kind of uh writing things down excellent yes for sure writing keeping you know on your phone in a journal <clears throat> you know in my in my um practice management software there's a place for um, clients to privately and securely message so if they can't sleep in the middle of the night and because they're ruminating their their thoughts are just have taken over and they can't go back to sleep is like i encourage them to just dump what they're thinking about into the messaging part of it so yes keeping track of those things so, so sometimes we get overwhelmed with uh we talked about you know the guilt and the self-blame and i'm you know my my protecting myself is causing another person to be upset is to um look back you can look back and and justify well wait a minute you know this happened and then this happened because we forget when we get into this brain fog place of what's really what's happening here but if you have a log like you say you can remind yourself because it's easy to like kind of forget or maybe this isn't so bad you know maybe i'm just over exaggerating how bad things are so absolutely i recommend writing stuff down mm, yeah it can be really eye-opening to be like oh now it all makes sense and you know also kind of yeah very eye-opening for example to understand okay like how often things for example happen and you know and sometimes I, I like to examine the situations like okay did I do something that made this situation happen kind of always writing down your role because after the situation has happened the narcissistic person may accuse you of 
starting argument or st you know that you are the one who caused it but then if you have written down that i was working on my computer and you know they just came to shout at me or something whatever came to criticize me then you are that like then if if you are in the middle of an argument and they say that you started it because sometimes you might even be, you know, because it's so manipulative environment that even if you first think that you know that, no, I didn't start it. But if they keep saying it all over and over again, you might be like, okay, maybe I actually started it. But it's it's so yeah, crazy making <laughs> from their part. So, okay. What do you think? What are three things that someone can do to overcome the rumination that narcissistic abuse creates? Yeah, we just talked about this, that, you know, it's like your mind just keeps chewing on what's happening. Um, where did I go wrong? How did I get into this situation? Um, how am I going to make it right with my children? Um, you know, the, all the blame, all this stuff is just like, it's like, constantly stuck in your head that thoughts are just cycling spinning around in your head so this is a real common thing and um one thing that that you just said about keeping a log or a diary or a journal and then i mentioned you know clients can just kind of process and dump out what it is that they're stuck with thinking is get it down get it out of their head write it down, speak into a recorder. I always recommend doing this really securely and safely if you're around somebody who might be snooping and looking into your um, computer or your phone is to make sure that everything is really secure, password protected, or that you can even dump it easily if you need to. So yeah, I just wanted to make that point. It's like a safety thing so that you feel safe. Um, so we're talking about rumination. Um, and again, I'm going to bring up mind unmindful practice because um, often what we're ruminating about is what has happened in the past or what we're afraid might happen in the future. We're trying to fix things, change things in our mind by thinking about it, being stuck in anxiety. And a mindfulness practice brings you focused into the current moment. So again, you know, this can be something that you do on a regular basis so that you have it in your arsenal, in your tool bag of things that you can do. So if you notice that you're ruminating, you're at work and you can't focus because you're stuck thinking about things. So you're waking up at three in the morning with the thoughts, the same thoughts going around and around, trying to solve the problems in your head, is that if you can shift your thought process into a mindful state of perhaps I like to use the body a lot as anchoring your thoughts somewhere in your body. So it's just maybe on your breath, how it feels to be breathed, how, you know, the quality of your breath or to consciously take 10 slow breaths and count each one as you inhale, it's one. And as you exhale, it's one. And you're focusing on the sensation of the air coming in and out. And then it's like two. And you may say two, two, two over and over as you inhale. And as you exhale, two. We can't be thinking of two things at the same time. 
we can focus on one thing. And so it's shifting your focus out of what you're chewing on, what's stuck in your head to something that you have control over, which is focusing on your breath. And just doing that simple thing of shifting into a mindful practice of on how you're breathing or taking 10 breaths, or maybe it's just three breaths like that. It can really reduce the impact of the negative thoughts and feelings. So another way to deal with the rumination is to um, engage in positive activities. These are things that, that bring you joy. Maybe you like to knit, maybe you like to make things, maybe you like to tinker with wood. Um, maybe you like to go outside and do mindful walking, which is just, you know, just focusing on your footfall on the earth, slowly and consciously feeling, taking your shoes off and walking barefoot in the grass and focusing on the sensation that you're feeling in your feet. Um, Perhaps there are people in your life that you enjoy being with, your loved ones, your friends. Maybe it's a pet. Maybe if you have a dog, you can go to the park and just be engaged with a dog, loving, chasing a stick or a ball and playing fetch with the dog. Um, for some people, it's volunteering. It's getting out of what's the situation you're in and actually get being of service in some way in the community. And so you're focused on helping somebody else or whatever the act is. So that's another way to help with the, the ruminating thoughts. And, um, and this is like so important for me. I work in a body oriented way with people is, you know, getting into your body is just really focusing on what are you sensing in your body right now? And we can all do this. It's just, if you feel like closing your eyes, you can, if your eyes don't want to close, just soften your gaze and take a breath and let your focus go from an external focus. You can still be listening to my voice, but tune into the sensations that you're feeling in your body. I'm not necessarily, you don't need to tell or figure out why you're feeling that way, but just what are the sensations? There might be, right now I feel a bit of, of vibration in my heart area and a little bit of tension there. And, but you wanna move like, really scan your body. So what's, is there anything happening in your belly or up higher in your solar plexus, your chest, your shoulders, back of your heart, your neck, your face. Just notice where you have any sensation. We're not trying to make it go away or change it or make it feel better or different right now. It's just being with yourself, noticing. And if there is a particular place that your attention is going to, it maybe has the biggest sensation, is just allow yourself to be in the sensation. 
be with it. So focus on it, not in a way of judging it, wanting it to be different. It's just see what happens if you just be with it. If you're having trouble with this, it's okay. Be gentle with yourself. Take a deep breath and just allow your lungs to slowly fill up. And as you exhale, if your eyes are closed, you can bring your focus and awareness back into your environment, into the room. And if you're by yourself while you're listening to this, if you're not driving, um, you know, you might want to take out your journal or a piece of paper or take a note in your phone about what this was like for you, what you're noticing, and what happened as you focused on this sensation. Did it change? Did it get bigger? Did it, did it diminish a bit? Did the vibration change? You know, it's all going to be different. But this is a way to get out of our heads, the rumination, thoughts, and get more into the body because the body is the place that has experienced everything that you've experienced. And it has a lot to say. And it can become your best teacher as you move through the healing process of the growing and learning about this. Because really when we get in touch with our bodies, our heads can can really interfere and can, as we've talked about, can get in the way. But our bodies are gonna be the true barometer of what's going on with this. And we, when we start paying attention to our bodies, we start knowing more of what we need and what's going on and where to put our focus and where to put our hand for compassion. It's like, oh yeah, I'm feeling a lot of tension and my heart hurts right now. Oh. What would it be like to just stay with that for a moment and saying some things to yourself? I see you, I hear you, you're hurting right now. And I love you and I'm gonna protect you and I'm here with you. So yeah. Thank you. I feel better. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for holding that space here in this moment. Great. And um, yeah, I think today we had some great questions and great answers. So I want to thank everyone for listening. And thank you, Cynthia, so, so much for coming here and giving such helpful and insightful answers and doing that little practice at the end also it was very relaxing so i i really uh, appreciate you thank you it's a pleasure to be here thank you Juliana. if you have enjoyed this episode please leave us a review and share the episode with your friends and family have a wonderful rest of your day and see you in the next episode